It's great. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5. As you find that, you can stand. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I'll stop with that. We'll pray. God, I thank you so much for, again, your word and, um, and for being clear with us. And I pray, God, that, that our hearts would just be yours for you to speak to and that we would once again, God, yield to you and that we wouldn't um, place our own thinking above what you have said, but that we would come before you, God, as your servants and that we would, would just say yes, God, to all that you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it really doesn't have anything to do with preaching this morning, but I felt like, man, I just can't let this go. Um, the last couple Fridays, I've taken uh, two grandsons out for breakfast tacos, Weston and Ford, Weston's seven, Ford's five, I think that's right, right? And um, two Fridays ago, <clears throat> Ford was really slow eating his breakfast taco, and he finally got it done, most of it. And, um, but then on this Friday, he just woofed it down, just blew through his big breakfast taco. He's finished really before the others, my, myself and Weston. And I said, Ford, what happened? You know, between last week and this week, you know, you really ate your food fast. And he looked at me and laughed and he says, I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> One week makes a big difference when you're five years old. Last night I was out looking at, for deer with Weston, and we got out of the car, out of the truck, and got back to the truck, and I couldn't find my truck key. Looked all over for it, even tromped back through the weeds trying to find it, couldn't find it. And I told Weston, I said, it's not fun getting older. And he said, I know. I can remember when I was, um, I was probably nine or ten years old, I decided to see how long I could go without taking a bath before someone would notice. And I went quite a while. And I was sitting at the end of the table with my arms up on the table, and, and my mom was visiting with a neighbor lady at the other end of the table, and I'm just sitting there and eating a piece of pie or something, and my arms up on the table, and and they, at the same time, looked down at me, and my arms were just crusty with dirt and black. And, 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 and my mom said, how long has it been since you've had a bath? Well, I think it's about three weeks now. <laughs> <laughs> Why? So I was just waiting to see how long it'd take before somebody would notice. 
Now that does have a little bit to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning. <laughs> this is the, um, Jesus is addressing here the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And one, uh, just from the outset, I think one thing to say is aside from how he's going to explain adultery, apply adultery, um, the real, it comes always back to why is it even a big deal? And we can look at it at relationally and we go, obviously it's a huge deal because it is the ultimate betrayal. Um, and just as murder is obviously a big deal because it takes someone's life. But, and I say this not to minimize murder or adultery, um, but we need to keep in mind with everything that deals with um, ethics in Scripture, that that is not the starting point. The starting point is always theology, not the ethic. And the reason that murder is so wrong is because it is so contradictory to the nature of God, that, that an innocent person would lose his life for something that he has not done. And for adultery, because God is love. And, and so one betrays, murder is betraying the sanctity of life, and adultery is betraying the sanctity of marriage. But the starting point has to be with God himself. And, and the thing, I think, with this particular sin, um, sexual sin, is that we often, I think, underappreciate the significance of having been made right with God, of having been made pure of having our sin removed, and that we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Our purity, our moral purity, our righteousness comes at the cost of Jesus Christ himself. And it is a huge, huge deal. And to forfeit that purity um, and to choose to live a life of impurity and of being unclean is not funny. Um, it has major consequences, not only personally and interpersonally, socially, but it has major consequences ultimately in our relationship with God. It's a big, big deal. Just as with the commandment, thou shalt not murder, the tendency of the pharaohs, I'm sorry, the Pharisees, was to minimize that by making it a pipe self-righteously saying, I am not a murderer. And Jesus shows his people that that's not true, that all that God says applies to the heart and not just to our actions. And so we are all guilty of murder. Every one of us has been guilty of having this deep-seated anger, this unforgiveness toward others, and it is murderous, how God interprets it. The same would be true with adultery. It would be very easy. In fact, most people, most people, thankfully, go through life and never commit the physical act of adultery. But we're not off the hook. And so Jesus comes to this issue and says, I once again need to let you know that this is not just a physical act. It is much more than that. And by the way, in pulling out these two commandments and expounding on them, 
the commandment to not take a life and the commandment to not commit adultery, it seems to me that Jesus is, is hitting the two strongest desires in a man's life. And that's not murder and adultery. But that is that he is strongly moved for, toward aggression. Not violence, there's a difference. But there's something in him that says, I should not be passive as a man. I ought to be a doer and not, a, not one who is passive. I should step forward. I should be brave. I should be courageous. I should be strong. These are good things. I'm the one who should defend my family. I'm the one who should go to war in defense of my of wife and children. There's something in a man that says, this is right, and it is a good thing. When not directed by the Lord, not when the Lord doesn't have the freedom in our lives to to make that look the way it's supposed to look, it will become violent, even to the point of murder. A man has to learn how to get his aggression under control. He must also learn how to get his sexual desire under control. Sexual desire in itself is not sin. It's a good thing. God created us, men and women both, with sexual desire. And it is God's design that we have that. Typically, wrong runs stronger in men than in women, but it is, that in itself is also God's design. When I was um, in junior high and my anger was getting the best of me, um, as it often does with junior high boys, they have to learn how to control their anger. And they also have to learn how to deal with the hormones that are raging in them. And um, I vividly recall um, um, getting in a fight with my youngest brother, who was not able to defend himself. And I, um, I knocked him to the ground and, and knocked the wind out of him. And um, he, I've never, never seen anyone have the wind knocked out of him, and it truly frightened me. And I realized I am out of control. And I could have seriously, seriously hurt my little brother. And for the first time that I can recall, I turned to Jesus in my sin. And I said, Jesus, I'm out of control. And I cannot address this. I need you. And Jesus stepped in. It is that way with all sin. We have to understand this. It is, yes, sin impacts us personally. It impacts our relationship with others but it ultimately and primarily impacts our relationship with God. This is why David said in the psalm, I have sinned against you, O God, and you alone. He's not saying there was no other sin. He's just saying it's principally against God. And there is only one Savior from sin, and it is not you and I. We do not have control over sin. It is a deception to think that we do. And I think it's because we recognize that we have nothing that we can do to control sin that we often minimize it, redefine it, and call it something other than sin. That too is a mistake. So Jesus says here in verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. 
So clearly, he's making an application to the heart, and he was saying that is where adultery begins, in the mind. And because it, is, it begins in the mind, it is a sin that we can be guilty of our entire life. So even as you get older, you are not less inclined toward mental adultery. Your body is weak. You're maybe not able to still be able to, to be involved um, in sexual intimacy, but that doesn't mean your mind becomes pure. This is not about the body, ultimately. It is about the mind. We all know that. Jesus here is not saying everyone who looks on a woman has committed adultery. So we need to be careful to never go beyond Scripture. He's saying everyone who looks on a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. There is a difference. And every one of us know what that difference is. We should not try to rationalize this. We should not try to say that it isn't what it is. You know. The Spirit of God lives in us to lead us into all righteousness and all truth. And He will always convict us of sin. And so when we are looking and that look is lustful, it is adultery. It has already committed, been committed in the heart. It begins in the heart. It is possible to look and not commit adultery, to look and not be lustful. But again, we should not rationalize and excuse ourselves when there is, in fact, lust. We can look at a sunset and appreciate it and not be lusting. And we can look at the beauty of a woman and not be lusting. But we know when it becomes lust. It's clear in this context that lust is sin. Lust is adultery, and adultery is sin. But it's also clear in other contexts that this word, that the Greek word for lust here, is not always sinful. The Greek word, not that you're going to remember this, and I'm not saying it to make me smart, because I'm not, but epithumeo, and it's actually typically translated desire or earnestly desire. And it is not always translated by any stretch, lust. In Matthew 13, 17, Jesus said, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover before you before I suffer. In both of those verses, prophets and righteous men longing to see and to hear what these disciples were seeing and hearing. Jesus earnestly desiring to eat the Passover. It's the same exact word for lust. In 1 Peter 1.12, it says the angels long to look into these things. So angels, Jesus, the prophets, the angels... And rightly, it's, trans, it's translated desire or longing and not lust. You go through these verses and we see that the people who are desiring, and it's not a, a sinful desire, are the prophets, righteous men, disciples, Jesus, Paul, the angels. 
in their desiring to see and hear Jesus, to see one of the days of the Son of Man, Jesus to eat the Passover before his death, to understand the scriptures and what they mean, to be with Jesus, Paul says, I desire to depart and to be with Jesus, and on from there. But when it is desire for a woman, specifically a woman that you're not married to, then that desire is sin, and it is lust. For the life of me, I don't understand how the Mormons who have a New Testament, they also have what they call their new New Testament, the Book of Mormon, but it is um, entrenched in their beliefs that they will one day be gods, and they will populate a planet with many, many wives. And, well, where do the wives come from? Well, they, they select their wives while they're on earth now, before they're gods. And they will just walk around and see a woman that they like, ask her for her name, and then may go to one of the temples and find out whether she has been claimed by someone else. And if she has not been claimed by anybody else, then they will register her as one of their celestial wives. And they can do this as many times as they choose. And if that's not coveting another man's wife, I don't know what is. If that's not having lust in your heart for another woman, I don't know what is. And it is entrenched in their religion. It is adultery. No small thing. The word itself is ugly. And it should be to us. The lustful look. I don't know that it's possible to look at pornography and not lust. And I think that we would all agree with that. Therefore, we should just say pornography is a form of adultery. Pornography is adultery. We should be very specific and clear on these things. For a single person who's not married, it might be more accurate to say it's a form of fornication. But if you're married and looking at pornography, you are committing adultery. You are unfaithful to God. You are trivializing the purity that has been secured for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are violating your marriage vows. We have to see this for what it is. It is so serious that Jesus said, this is what you should do. Verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. The right eye was typically the dominant eye. And so that would be the one that he's saying, get rid of. It is better for one of the parts of your body to perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body go into hell. So clearly Jesus is saying this is a big deal. It should be dealt with drastically, without compromise, without hesitation. We should be radical and uncompromising, deliberate, intentional, 
with this particular sin. In chapter 15 of Matthew, thankfully, Jesus writes and says that it is from the heart that these things proceed. Chapter 15, verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. I'm glad for that on one hand because it means that I don't have to pluck out my eye or cut off my hand because my hand and my eye are not the problem. My heart is. I like to jokingly say that if the body were the problem and getting rid of body parts would make you sin less, then short people sin less than big people <laughs> because we have less body than you big Goliath Philistines. <laughs> now, we know that's not true. The problem is the heart. Well, in one sense, that's good news. I don't have to cut off body parts. There was at least one church father who cut off body parts, and they weren't the ones mentioned here in order to deal with the problem. He never said, to my knowledge, whether it worked or not. We know there have been monks who went into monasteries, even into solitary isolation um, in the desert in order to spe uh, specifically to avoid and evade sexual sin, even the temptation of it. And some of those monks wrote and said it did no good whatsoever because you take your mind with you. The answer, because it is a heart problem, is to have a new heart. And a new heart comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you place your faith in Christ for salvation, for eternal life, the scripture says that you are crucified with Christ. And in that crucifixion, God raises up a new creation. You become a new person. And you are raised to newness of life with Christ. Nothing else will remedy the problem except a new heart. Other things are good, and I am not against them. And I have encouraged, and I still do, things like scripture memory. Wonderful, wonderful thing to do. But I am telling you, you can memorize the entire Bible and not have a renewed mind. Khrushchev did just that. He memorized the entire New Testament. Because for every chunk of scripture that he, that he memorized, he got a piece of candy. And he liked candy. And so he memorized the entire New Testament. And he became one of the greatest mass murderers this world has ever seen. His mind was not renewed by all the scripture that he memorized. And if we are trusting in Scripture memory to keep us from lustful thoughts, we are going to be very discouraged. In my own experience, um, when I have found myself under the attack of the enemy, it could be lustful thoughts, it could be um, bitterness and resentment. 
which deal with the two things that Jesus is talking about. I have found it very helpful to out loud recite the scripture in the midst of the temptation. It's good for me to hear myself speak the truth, scripture that may not even be directly applicable to what I'm going through at the time, but it's still truth. It's good for me to hear myself speaking the truth. And I have come to think that Satan hates scripture. And when he tempts me and I start reciting scripture, and obviously I can't do this in every context. People think you're crazy. Standing in the grocery store line, all of a sudden you start reciting scripture or whatever. Um, you can't do it everywhere and in, every, out loud. But I have found that the devil would flee. The Bible says, resist the devil. Draw near to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's a practical way we can do that. But we should be aware that what we're doing is resisting the devil. Jesus used scripture, quoted scripture, to resist the devil in the midst of temptation. We should do the same. But we're not trusting in scripture memory. Accountability is very good. But it also is not fail-proof. One of the power of, powers of any sin is darkness. And with sexual sin, that is especially the case. Most of us would not look at what we're looking at if we thought somebody would come in and see us. And so accountability is a very, very good thing. But there are many ways to get around it. And if our trust is in accountability, then we will fail. I knew two men in San Antonio, well-known businessmen at the time, and they were in an accountability group, and every week they would meet, and every week they would ask each other a series of accountability questions, very specific questions, and they'd look each other in the eye as they asked the questions and they answered. And then the last thing, question they would ask each other was, in any of the answers you just gave me, have you lied to me? And both men were lying to each other. Very, very sad story. So accountability will never take the place of a new heart and the power of Christ in us. Confession, very good. To openly confess our sin, to ask for forgiveness, and even to ask for help. All of these things are good and necessary, but we should be absolutely clear, only Jesus can set us free. Only Jesus. It begins with a new heart. If you do not have a new heart, then that is the place to begin. If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, then I'm probably talking to you. You cannot, without Christ and his life within you, have victory over sin. You must be born again. Sin is bigger than any of us. The devil is more powerful than any of us. The influence of the world is greater than anything we could, could separate ourselves from. You need Jesus for your own sin. And once you've 
received Christ and you've trusted in him for eternal salvation, eternal life, you are made a new creature. And you still need Jesus every moment of every day. I've never known anybody who has ever been delivered from any sin by anything they have done. Do you? It has always been Christ. Jesus is the only deliverer from sin. I don't hesitate to say that I personally believe that when our, our, we have no longer any capacity, it seems, to choose, to do what is right, to break free from the bondage, when there is incredible bondage, there may, in fact, be a demonic element. I say this from personal experience, and I won't go into all the details. But I have seen in my own life um, freedom that came through another person's prayer. And I didn't even know that I needed any prayer. I was in college. The university um, president was preaching on spiritual bondage. And at the end of his message, he just said, I'm going to pray that anybody here who is in bondage, that the Lord would set them free. And a number of students went front, and they stood around the podium as he prayed. I didn't because I couldn't think of any area where I needed to be free. And yet, as he prayed, I realized in the days and weeks and months and years afterwards that God set me free from that particular moment. Jesus did it, but he used scripture memory. He used accountability. He's used confession, but he also used the intercessory prayer of a godly man. But again, it is Christ who sets free. The only remedy to sin is Jesus. You know these verses from Romans 6. I'm going to read them anyway. They're a good reminder. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, the old self is the identity that we had before we were saved. That person, same relationship, same interest, but, but the core identity of who we are, which is spiritual, that person was dead, separated from God, and that person alive in Christ, and it is a new person who lives. So much so that Paul would say that when he sins, it is no longer he that sins, but it is evil which is in him. John will say the same thing in 1 John where he says the one who abides in him cannot sin and he will go so far as to say that the one who is born again, speaking of that new creature, that new creation, does not sin. 
our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. The body of sin, I believe, is just simply this body under the control of sin. It is so under the control of sin before we're saved, we may not even realize it, that it is for all practical purposes an instrument of sin, a body of sin. That is no longer the case. We have been set free. The body is no longer an instrument of sin. It can become that, but it is not that in Christ because we have been crucified and raised to newness of life. For he who has died, speaking of you and I, if we have placed our faith in Christ, we have died with Christ. He who has died is freed from sin. Freed from sin. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. The implication is clear, neither is it master over us. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We can be living in such continual defeat in any area of our life, but particularly when it comes to pornography or lust, that we can begin to think, well, this is just the way that I am. This is not who you are. Not who you are. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Oswald Chambers says he believes that one of the reasons that people struggle so much over sin and don't find victory in the Lord is because they have never settled who they are. This is not who you are. And that puts you on the pathway to victory. That every time this comes up, you stop and go, this is not who I am. Just as I believe it helps us to be on the pathway to victory to recognize that pornography is adultery. Call it what it is. We've got to face the truth with these things. This is not who I am. I have died to sin. I am alive in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of, of unrighteousness. And this is the only thing he says to do. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Presentation. Yes, scripture memory. Yes, accountability. Yes, confession. None of those things will deliver me from sin. The only thing that will keep sin from being master over me is to present myself to Jesus and allow him to be my master. No one has ever delivered themselves from sin. Only Jesus. We must present ourselves to him. I have so many thoughts on this, and my mind's just going in a lot of different directions. Jesus is telling us to be uncompromising, and I would say because marriage is worth it. Marriage is worth it. Do you really need to be on Instagram? Do you really need to be on Facebook? I can't speak to Facebook. I've never been on it. But I was on Instagram, and I had to get off of it because I found there 
are Instagram sites that are not profitable. I could not look at them without entering into lust. And I had to delete my Instagram account. Do you really need those movie channels? We get them thrown at us ever so often. And it's kind of, you know, because they're, they're, they're wanting to tempt you with, you know, you could pay a little bit more, pay another $5 a month, and you can get all these movie channels. The thing is that they are not censored. And Patsy and I watched a great movie last night that we wouldn't normally have had a chance to see. And I appreciate it a lot. But there's a lot of other stuff on there that I don't need to see. It's not worth, nothing is worth that. Marriage is worth it. My soul is worth being uncompromising, deliberate, even radical with these things. How I view women in general and relate to them is worth being uncompromising, deliberate, and radical. Your children are worth it. The legacy you leave behind is worth it. I have a friend who did a doctoral dissertation on, on where young men of today are. He's speaking of 20 to 30-year-olds. And he is on the faculty, actually an administrator, at, a, at a, one of the biggest Christian universities in the world. And um, he's become very aware and very concerned with the lack of motivation, the lack of drive, the lack of initiative that he sees in many Christian young men. And so as he began his research, doctrinal dissertation level on what is the problem, he came to the conclusion that it is pornography is the problem. That it can just, it will, it has the potential of just sapping you of your spiritual and moral energy. In every way, you become defeated. And young men don't have the drive anymore, many of them. And they settle with jobs that will never earn them a decent wage never allow them to provide for a family because they aren't thinking beyond their own lust. They aren't thinking, I need to be in a position someday to be able to provide for a wife and children because of the oppressive nature and debilitating nature of pornography, of sexual sin, of lust. Jesus only spends a couple verses on this, and I am not going to spend much time on it. But it is clear in verses 31 and 32 that Jesus wants to speak of another kind of adultery. The issue here is not what constitutes grounds for divorce. That is not Christ's subject here. We need to be honest about that. His subject is what constitutes adultery. So he began by saying that whoever has looks lustfully on another woman is committing adultery. And still, without changing subject, he says further on this subject of adultery, verse 32, well, beginning in verse 31, 
And it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this subject's going to come up again in Matthew 19, so I'm not going to spend time on it this morning. We're already out of time. All I would do is just show you, point out to you the obvious, that Jesus' subject, beginning in verse 27 through verse 32, is adultery. His subject in these last two verses of this paragraph are not grounds for divorce. That is not his subject. That's for another discussion. His subject is what constitutes adultery. So adultery is the physical act. Adultery is the lustful look. And adultery is divorce and remarriage. The divorce itself is not adultery. But divorce and remarriage is another way that we commit adultery. I would say again, don't throw stones. If you've been at all honest, you've not made it through the first part of this paragraph without being guilty. Amen? None of us are innocent when it comes to adultery. It's amazing that God loves us. Again, this is the ultimate betrayal. The ultimate treachery is adultery. And just as we are all guilty of murder, we are all guilty of adultery. Jesus didn't write these, didn't give this sermon, obviously to make people walk away and feel good about themselves. But he gave this to humble us, to bring us to truth, honesty, and to cry out to Jesus because we need a Savior. And Jesus is the only one who can deliver us from sin. I'll close us in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for all that you have secured on our behalf through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been washed clean, made new creatures. Incredible, God, what you've done. Made the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Sanctified, justified, redeemed, reconciled to you. Because we simply said, Jesus, save me. You did it all. And Lord, we would just as willingly and humbly recognize that we are powerless in and of ourselves against the devil or against this world or against sin. We need you. You tell us to put on Jesus and to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. And that is the greatest provision we could ever make against the flesh and its lust, is to simply put on Jesus. You tell us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we know, God, that your grace is available to do that, or you wouldn't tell us to do it. But we look to you, O oh God, as the one who has saved us, to be the one who also sanctifies us. 
because we are helpless without you. And I thank you, God, for the great deliverance that we can testify to as we have turned to you. Any of us that have any testimony of the deliverance that you have given, it has been because you have done it. And we cannot puff up our chest and say we are victorious because of our own strength. We are not. I pray that we would walk humbly with great dependence upon you and that we would also be gracious, O oh God, in our dealings with one another because we all fall short. We all transgress. But in this, God, we don't want to um, just live in defeat. Our eyes are on you, O oh Lord, that we might walk in the life and in the victory that you've given us in Christ. And I pray that we would be a people who consistently present ourselves to Jesus, that sin might not rule over us. In Jesus' name, amen.